And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast, where before we get to Heat Celtics, we have to reflect on the Warriors at the precipice of yet another finals appearance, their first in three years. Almost 14 months ago, just 14 months ago, what remained of the Warriors dynasty lost to the Raptors in Tampa, Florida. Remember the Raptors relocated to Tampa? That was a thing. The Warriors lost that game by 53 points. At that time, it had been about two years, almost two years, since Kevin Durant tore his Achilles in Game 5 of the Finals in 2019 in Toronto. And anyone who's at that game can close their eyes and see, clear as day, the sight of Durant crumpling to the ground on the right sideline. In a very bad way, it took your breath away. It hit you right in the gut. You knew something had changed forever, that things would not be the same in the NBA ever again. Three days later, Clay Thompson went down towards ACL, and he was in the middle, by the way, of an all-time heater that looked like it might force a super-pressurized Game 7 in Toronto, only this time it would be the Warriors trying to rally from a 3-1 deficit in the finals instead of blowing a 3-1 lead. Everybody by then knew it was very likely Durant was going to leave Golden State in the offseason. The only question was where. And when Clay went down, it made you think, is that it? Is this, is this over for the Warriors? Is the dynasty done? That 53-point loss to the Tampa Raptors, that was April 2021. Now with the Warriors on the precipice of the finals again, it feels like it happened in some alternate reality. In a way, it kind of did. Steph Curry and Draymond Green, they both missed that game due to injury. Jordan Poole, he had just come back from the freaking G League. He had 10 points on 3 of 15 shooting. He had started to show some flashes. He had surged a couple weeks before then, but he was in the middle at that time of six straight games where he didn't get past 10 points in any of the games. James Wiseman, he started at center. He wasn't ready. Kelly Oubre started that game too, and the Warriors already knew. He was a bad fit in their read and react system. Their beautiful game built around Steph Curry and his intuitive, constant, relentless off-ball movement. The benchman at that night, Nico Mannion, Kent Bazemore, Eric Paschal, Alan Smilagich, remember Smiley? And Kevon Looney. Only Looney of that group is on the team now. And by the way, absolutely killing it on both ends of the floor. That Steph and Draymond and Clay were injured in that game. It wasn't just like a throwaway storyline. They're all in their early 30s by that point with a lot of miles on their legs, including about 120 playoff games apiece. That's a season and a half of playoff games. Clay had just torn his Achilles a few months before that game in Tampa on top of the ACL. You remember back going into those finals against Toronto, the Warriors had been 34-4 and over three seasons without Durant and with Curry, 34-4 and going into those finals. They dusted off the Harden, Paul, James Harden, Chris Paul, Houston Rockets in the last two games of the conference semifinals that year with Durant hurt when he had the calf injury. And they did that to Houston in a whir of just classic pre-Durant Warriors action. Split cuts, constant movement, handoffs, the Steph Draymond pick and roll magic and all the counters that flow out of that. Then they swept the Portland Trailblazers playing the same way. They look like the old Warriors again. Even with Durant, Golden State had maintained the principles of that classic Steph Draymond Clay offense. Durant just allowed them to play a simpler style if they wanted to or when they needed to. And without Durant, when he was injured in those games, they went 6-0 and before the Raptors series, and they slipped right back into their old offense and ran that baby at full throttle as if they had never missed a beat. Those six games were a reminder. We are still here. We're still champions. We know how to win. Our style is so different from what everyone else does, how every other team plays, that it's just so hard to adapt to in a short series. There are just moving problems everywhere, moving shooters everywhere, too many fires to put out at once. Jeff Bedzelik, who was the defensive coordinator for the Rockets around that time, once told me, quote, it's like you're in a boat with three holes at the bottom and you only have two pegs to plug them. You just have to keep moving the pegs around. Well, the Raptors won that finals four to two, took some air out of the Golden State non-Durant balloon. In just two weeks, the Raptors had beaten the non-Durant plus Curry Warriors as many times as the entire league had done it in three combined seasons when Durant had been out with injuries. And the Warriors, they were not super well built to withstand any kind of long-term injury to one of their stars. You sacrifice depth to hoard stars. That's the trade-off. Lose one or two of your stars, and they had lost two by the end. That lack of depth really starts to hurt. Even so, Golden State was right in that series until Clay got hurt too. We might have seen a Game 7. That would have been awesome. All of that stuff from 2019... Those reminder games, that's what I call them, the reminder games without Durant against Houston and Portland. All of it, though, it was a long time ago. Could we really expect 
Steph, Clay, and Draymond to do it again three years later. But the Warriors offered a subtle and more recent reminder. Finishing last season 15-5 and five and looking like the Warriors again. Green and Curry got healthy. Wiseman got hurt. Oubre got hurt, and then when he came back, he wasn't a starter anymore. The Warriors mothballed every player who couldn't play the Warrior way. They stopped trying to thread the needle between winning today and developing their youth. They just tried to win, and they won. They started to win big again. Their core lineups were incredible statistically. They destroyed people when Curry and Green played without Wiseman last season. The Curry-Green-Looney trio, the one that's starting right now, outscored opponents last season by 15 points. 15 points per 100 possessions. That's massive. Poole exploded late in the season. The Warriors suddenly looked unguardable with both Poole and Curry on the floor, running, cutting all over the place at full blast. Poole looked like he was doing a Curry impression out there, a little baby Curry. The Warriors last season had rediscovered their identity, rediscovered what had made them so dangerous before. It was too late to save their season. Remember, they lost in the play-in. But if you watched, you knew. And in the offseason, they doubled down. They signed only players who seemed like they would be a good fit into their system. Otto Porter, a natural, a perfect Warriors role player. All flare screens and random cuts and good defense and tough rebounds. Otto Porter also has that Sean Livingston thing where he'll make a couple of random mid-range jumpers and it just feels so demoralizing because you're watching Steph over here, Clay over there, Draymond's running around doing handoffs and now I got to pay attention to Wiggins and you shut all that down for 15 seconds, direct the ball to the other guy on the floor, the one guy you're like, eh, okay, well, we're cool with that. And then are you freaking kidding me? Otto Porter just had a pull-up 17-putter in my face. Just a total gut punch basket. Those Livingston post-up baskets back in the day, back in the heyday, they always felt like they should have counted for six points. They were so demoralizing. Andre Iguodala, he came back. Man, it would be great to see him play again. Gary Payton II, another natural fit. Golden State picked up Kevon Looney's option, but he's killing it. Nemanja Bejelica, he brought shooting, some IQ. I was high on Golden State before the season. I told Nick Friedel and Anthony Slater on this very podcast preseason, back when Andrew Wiggins' vaccination status was a thing, that they had a final ceiling if enough things went right. I was the Tigger of that podcast. We made a whole Winnie the Pooh comparison. I was the enthusiastic Tigger. But a lot, a lot had to go right. And sports rarely allows everything to go right. Sports is just cruel that way. Hell, Curry and Green, the two foundational pieces along with Clay, they both got hurt and missed time in the regular season due to an injury. And of course, Clay is working his way back from massive injury. But most of those ifs flash forward here to May, to the finals, almost. Most of those ifs have broken right. Poole is for real. He's a dynamic scorer, and he adds a little bit of oomph, a little bit of speed and athleticism that the Warriors really need. He can play within Golden State system. He's great at it, but he can also break it, break away from it whenever the Warriors just need someone to go and get a bucket. Against the very best teams, even the Warriors, even the beautiful game Warriors, Need someone who can play outside of their system when the defense is giving you nothing and the shot clock is ticking down. Poole brings that. Have you noticed he has this delightful thing on pick and rolls that he does where he just kind of like drives full speed in a straight line toward the pick and just continues by it without using it? He doesn't really like reject the pick and go sideways as much as he just kind of blows past it like a car speeding past a stalled vehicle in the shoulder. Defenders haven't been able to figure that one out yet. And Wiggins... Whew. Holy hell, Andrew Wiggins. Even in their dynastic pre-Durant years, pre-Durant, the Warriors were not like a big athleticism and size and speed team. They lived on the ground. They won with skill and smarts and shooting and defense. I'll never forget how almost like overwhelmed they looked at times by the Oklahoma City Thunder's size and athleticism in that epic 2016 conference finals that turned out to be Durant's last series with the Thunder. The Thunder just like swallowed up the Warriors in stretches of those games. I vividly remember Sean Livingston catching the ball wide open, right underneath the basket. Nobody around him. And he started pump faking, pump faking a ghost. There was nobody there. The Thunder's size and length and leaping ability, they were that deep in the Warriors' heads at times in that series. But Wiggins, Wiggins brings a little of that verticality, a little of that speed, a little of that oomph that those teams didn't have until Durant got there. Ask Luca. Holy smokes. 
I'm still recovering from that dunk. Wiggins' speed and doggedness on defense in this series against Dallas has been eye-popping. He skitters right around those screens, getting all skinny, one after another, all those picks for Luka. And even if he falls behind a little bit, he sticks right on Luka's hip, sometimes even gets parallel to him, or even like slides back inside to challenge him at the rim. That's hard to do. And from the moment the Warriors flipped Mate Ellis for Andrew Bogut, remember how the fans booed Joe Lacob out of the building for that one, by the way? From that moment, defense, defense has always been as much a part of their foundational identity in their DNA as anything else. No matter how explosive your offense is, how pretty it all looks, you cannot win big in the NBA without at least a decent defense. It doesn't have to be top three or top five, although that helps when your offense is as good as the Warriors. It has to be at least decent. And when things got tough against the Grizzlies in these playoffs, and the Grizzlies were a pain in the butt against Golden State, the Warriors leaned right back in that defense direction by starting big, by starting Looney and Draymond together again after it seemed like they had moved past that. Golden State spacing on offense isn't awesome with those two bigs on the floor, but those two guys, they just know how to play together and to how to play off Klay Thompson and especially Steph Curry. They are killing the Mavericks with little tic-tac-toe interior passing and offensive rebounds too, especially Looney. And Wiggins has just been so disruptive on defense. You can tell that Luka feels him, hears him coming. Even if Wiggins can't necessarily get right back in front, his arms are just everywhere disrupting Luka's passing vision, his timing. He's just blanketing him. You don't necessarily want Wiggins playing outside the Warrior system on offense. One of the reasons he has been successful in Golden State is precisely because he can fit within that system instead of being shoehorned into some high-usage star-scoring role that he isn't really meant to be. But the Warriors needed his bounce, his speed, and his defense. Wiggins is 27 years old. Just turned 27, actually. Right smack in the middle of the old head core and the rising young guys. Kaminga, Poole, Moody, maybe Wiseman one day. What a bridge player Andrew Wiggins has turned into. That was the bet the Warriors made when they turned Kevin Durant's departure into a sign-and-trade for D'Angelo Russell and the max contract for Russell that went into that deal. They knew Russell's track record was eh, kind of hit or miss. They understood he wasn't a great stylistic fit with Curry, that the Curry, Clay Thompson, Russell trio would face huge questions on defense if they ever actually played together with all the injuries. They could have just let Durant walk, kept Andre Iguodala. Remember, they had the salary dump Andre Iguodala and a draft pick, and they could have just let Durant walk, kept Andre, kept all those picks. They traded in the Durant and Iguodala deals. Remember, they traded a protected first to Brooklyn in the KD deal somehow. Hell, that might have even been safer than what they did with Russell. There was no guarantee they would ever be able to flip Russell for a veteran who fit the Warriors' core better than D'Angelo Russell did. But the Warriors bet big on their own ingenuity. They understood they had no other realistic means of acquiring a potential core player in his prime, a veteran, not someone they had to wait on for six or seven years, not a 35-year-old, someone in that sweet spot of mid to late 20s. They had no other way to get that guy. All those picks they traded... What were the chances any of that, any of those picks, would lead to a player who would have been ready to help Steph, Green, and Thompson at the end of their primes? Very slim. One of those picks, the one they traded to Brooklyn in the convoluted Durant deal, that turned into a harmless 20-25 second rounder anyway. And then, and then, the Warriors turned Minnesota's lust for D'Angelo Russell. They had to have him. We didn't just want a point guard. We wanted this point guard. They turned their lust for D'Angelo Russell and to Andrew Wiggins, and somehow, remarkably, a lightly protected first-round pick that became Jonathan Kaminga. I liked that deal at the time. Even if you're a Wiggins skeptic, and, and many people were, almost everybody was at that time, that pick alone made it a clear Golden State win. And now, now the deal looks like a complete masterstroke by the Warriors. Executives around the league have assumed for years, almost since that trade for Wiggins, that the Warriors would just let Wiggins walk when his deal expires after next season, that his usefulness would have run its course for them. How could they carry massive contracts for Curry, Thompson, Green, Wiggins, Jordan Poole, who's up for an extension? That's five guys. The tax bill would be unprecedented. Other teams and less lucrative markets would grumble. That's not fair. It's not fair. Where is that? And wasn't the point of Moody and Kaminga to be successors to Wiggins anyway? Wasn't that the entire point of it? But Wiggins has played so well and fit so well 
that he might have changed that equation. The Warriors are on the verge of the finals again. And even with the West set to be even more beefed up next season with the Nuggets and the Clippers and the Grizzlies, the Wolves are still coming. There's no reason to believe that any of the core stars are going to decline in any super meaningful way anytime soon. Curry is still a supernova. Draymond, still the best defender in the league when the chips are down. Thompson should be even better next season. And by the way, it has been remarkable what he has done in this season, considering what he's coming back from. The Warriors may need Wiggins to extend that bridge until the young guys are really, really ready. He's been that good. Everyone is always asking whether the Warriors were a dynasty, are a dynasty, could be a dynasty. I don't really know what a dynasty is. Part of that is that the Warriors are kind of tricky to evaluate. There's been at least three iterations of the Warriors during this decade. There were the the pre-Durant Warriors who won one title and then lost the 2016 finals, the 73-win team. Then there was the Durant version that nobody really knows what to do with because they were invincible until the injury struck. And now there's this one. The better comparison is the Spurs. The Warriors have long discussed their hope of emulating the Spurs model. The Spurs never really became a dynasty in the traditional sense. They won five titles over 15 years. Is that a dynasty? I don't even know what that is. That's just the Spurs. They never repeated famously because repeating is super duper hard. But they were among the league's elite teams for 20 years. An incredible, incredible feat in an NBA, in a league defined by boom and bust cycles of talent development, star free agency, players leaving left and right. That is a really, really high mark to hit. And the Warriors somehow have given themselves a chance at it. The somehow is mostly because of the greatness of their three founding stars and now the work that the front office has done to surround those guys with different kinds of talent. Remember, the Warriors, the Spurs thing sounds crazy. We're a decade into this now. The Warriors beat the Nuggets in the playoffs in the first round and pushed the Spurs to the limit in 2013. It's 2022. They're halfway to that 20-year mark with no signs of slowing down. I would expect some genuine emotion to flow from the Warriors if and when they clinch this berth in the finals. Because three years ago, it felt like it was coming apart. And now, now they're back. Back on the precipice of the finals. Back to chase another title. Back doing it, playing their way. Steph's way, Kerr's way, Draymond's way, Clay's way. Back where they feel they belonged, even when to us and even to some people within their organization, it felt like it was starting to crack. The Warriors are back on the verge of the finals. Now let's bring in ESPN's Tim Bontemps to talk Heat Celtics ahead of a massive Game 5 in Miami. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? Full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part, each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, ooh, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. All right, fresh off another bizarre game in a series that has been nothing but bizarre. The Celtics blow the Miami Heat to smithereens in Boston last night. The Heat had like 43 points toward the end of the third quarter. The game was over seemingly almost before it started. Uh, Jimmy Butler 
3 of 14, I believe, did not look like himself and left the game rather early, never returned. Heat offense just had no answers for Boston's defense. Tim Bontemps, it's 2-2. A pivotal, the proverbial pivotal game five awaits us tomorrow in Miami. We will both be there. It somehow doesn't feel, the magnitude of this game doesn't feel like it's there because this series has just been so bizarre with guys in and out of the lineup, blowouts here, weird games there. What has it felt like to be at these games like what do you do you feel like you have a feel for this series at all like it's just been so weird i actually don't think it's been very weird at all uh and i think it's actually maybe the simplest series i've ever been around uh if the celtics don't do stupid they're going to win games and if they do they are either going to lose or it's going to be a mess like that's the whole series if the celtics don't turn the ball over and allow the heat to just get wide open uncontested layups then they're going to win these games. They'll win the next two games, and they'll go to the NBA Finals. Because they've proven through these first four games of the series that the Heat can't score in them in the half court. That's been the case throughout the series, sort of what everybody thought would generally be the case when the series started, right? What were the Heat going to look like in the half court? Obviously, if Jimmy Butler was healthy, if Kyle Lowry was healthy, if Tyler Hero was healthy, if P.J. Tucker was healthy, if Bam Adebayo is around other than game three, maybe you would look at that and think differently. But to me, that's been the way the series has looked from the jump. It's the way these first four games have played out. And if you tell me the number of turnovers the Celtics have in games five, six, and seven, if there is one, I could probably tell you who's going to win the game. In the aggregate, I get what you're saying. When I previewed this series, I think it was with Van Gundy. I don't even remember, to be honest with you. The playoffs... It's just yeah, it was. I don't know what was the hell is going on. Uh, and by I, the way, your pod with Nikias uh, the other night was great too. And there are intricacies, obviously, that we can break down. But at the end of the day, if the Celtics don't turn the ball over, I don't see how they're losing games. Yeah, I, that was the, the the stat because the Heat I, were like fourth or fifth in forcing turnovers in the regular season, and the Celtics were about an average turnover team, prone to some sloppiness here and there. Obviously, I think much has been made, maybe too much has been made of their sort of alleged lack of guys who can dribble adequately. I, I think that's less of a problem than, than like Bill Simmons, my old boss and friend, harps on this a lot. I think th- I think that's been overdone a little bit, but they well, are they have prone. one guy who very notably can't dribble, which is causing problems. But well, but the, other the, than that, I agree with you. And, and they're prone to sloppiness here and there. And I said, but I said before the series, like the Heat have a very tiny chance of winning this series if they can't get out in transition. And the easiest way for them to do that is to force turnovers and also to get Kyle Lowry back. I loved how the very first possession that Kyle Lowry played in this series was a defensive rebound run out three-pointer for Struess, I think, trailing the play in, in game three. And sure enough, the Celtics have 39 turnovers in their losses and 18 combined in their two wins. That's a rather substantive uh, difference. The Heat's half-court offense for the series is scoring, according to Cleaning the Glass, 90.9 points per 100 possessions in the regular season. To put that in perspective, that would have ranked 27th ahead of only the following three offensive juggernauts. Oklahoma City? Yes. Detroit? Yes. And Houston? No, nope. no, Houston because of its shot selection wasn't, yeah, wasn't they that shoot, bad. Right, uh, the team that has decided for ten years now that shooting is irrelevant and we just want a bunch of power forwards who can't shoot the Orlando Magic. Um, oh, of course. Now <laughs> owners of the number one pick, um, and so I mean, again, so to, to some degree that has just played out, right? Like when the Heat get turnovers, they win. When they get out in transition, they have a chance to win. When they don't, they don't. On the other hand, I I know you're not watching the broadcast because you're at the game. I've never seen Mike Breen just so – he literally – into the third quarter last night when they were doing the start to the third quarter, he, he literally said to Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, guys, I, I just have one question. What, what the hell is going on in this series? Like he's just – he has no analysis. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I don't – I just don't think it's been like – I really don't think it's been that complicated. Like, Well, 26 to 4 and like – the, it was the opposite the other day, yeah. and, then mean, the, have, I mean, and, the, and then you have and then you have Lowry, Butler, Smart, 
Horford, Time Lord, Hero have all missed right. some or all of a game in this right. series. It's just there's no rhythm to it at all. Well, that part is 100% true. I mean, to ask what it's been like to be at the games, it's been terrible. I've had I've had just a terrible playoff run. I I, I was at Sixers Raptors, which had one competitive game. Now Joel Embiid uh, break break his thumb and his face. Then I was at uh, Sixers Heat, where there's been there were blowouts basically every game. And then I've been at this series, so there's been blowouts basically every game. So maybe it's my fault. I had Stats Williams look it up last night. There's already been 22 blowouts and 20 or more points in these playoffs, second most all time. And I've been at six of them. I, so, dude, I remember. I, think it's me. I remember being at the finals in Cleveland on the jump, and we did a segment outside the arena on is it weird that there are so many blowouts in this playoffs? I don't even know what what year it was. It was later. I think Cavs that was. Warriors. I think yeah. I think yeah. I think it was. Uh, it might have been fifteen, sixteen. I think that was the year with the most. I think there were twenty four. Whatever year it was, we've been doing that same segment for like seven consecutive years now, and I think this yeah. is just life in the three-point heavy NBA yep. where you the, the best teams can just One rampage team. over the other teams. Even if the other teams are good, they get hot. Like, this is just how good these teams are. Yeah. I think this is just life. One- if one team makes 23s, the other makes 10, that's plus 30, right? Or minus 30, either way. Like, that's, you know, to your point, you're going to have a lot of swings. And look, these teams both play have really good defenses. They both generally shoot a lot of threes, so the Celtics basically – turn the heat off from threes in the first quarter completely. Um, so, yeah, I think to me it hasn't – the swings back and forth, I guess, haven't been that surprising because they've basically correlated to when the Celtics have taken care of the ball, they're just a far superior team. And when they haven't, they're either a far worse team or the games have a chance to be competitive. And like I said – if Jimmy was fully healthy, if Kyle was fully healthy, I mean, Kyle, God bless him. He comes back in game three. He ran the first three minutes. He basically hasn't ran since then. Like, he's clearly gotten it out and given everything he's got, but he doesn't have a ton to give at this point. And you go up and down this heat roster, like you said before, you know, people have been making too much about who on the Celtics can dribble. There's not very many guys on the heat who can dribble right now. I mean, with you've got basically Kyle and... Jimmy and, you know, Victor Oladipo had a renaissance game last night. But outside of that, they, they, I mean, they don't have a lot of creators either. So, I mean, it's just a it's just kind of a gross, ugly series with two of the probably the two best defenses in the league going at it. And, you know, here we sit. And as I as I as I said to Nikias Duncan before Kyle Lowry came back over the weekend, I thought Kyle would help their defense at least as much as he helped their offense. And I think that's played out. I mean, with the Heat's starting lineup only has one guy the Celtics can really hunt. And it's Struess, who's actually solid enough. I mean, Jalen Brown has gotten comfortable. He's a big guy. He's big. He's tough. He's he's a good rebounder, which is a big deal for them, especially when they switch Bam out high. Um, Mm -hmm. Jalen Brown has looked comfortable going at Struess. Tatum has looked pretty comfortable going at Struess. But he's not – it's not just like – blow buys overpowering post-ups they, they have right. to work for it at least you don't have to just like swarm your entire defense at them and I think look Boston can score against Miami to some degree when they don't turn the ball over and when they actually focus on where what should we do on offense and calc- and, and do and, and, <laughs> yes. and, and play in a calculated way but they're not going to overwhelm Miami's defense Miami's defense with Lowry no. back and decent health is fine the question to me it game four and it's hard to know because so many guys are missing games. Game four felt like the game where the Celtics, four games in, with their full team, found the right balance of how to defend the Heat's, all the Heat's actions. The Heat pick and rolls, the Heat split actions. They found the right balance of when to drop, when to switch, when not to switch, when to go under. And now the series has reached that sort of tipping point where either the Heat will have a response or the Celtics will backslide in how well they execute their schemes and the Heat will hit enough pull-up threes over the drop-back defense or pull-up twos over the drop-back defense to be in the game. Or the Celtics will execute cleanly again, the Heat will not have an answer, and the Celtics will have an advantage again. And by the way, um, sometimes it's simple. Bam had 31 points in Game 3. He has 25 points 25. in the other three games. Yep. Jimmy Butler... Yep. 
in the last two games, obviously he missed the second half of game three, has 14 points in two games on six of 22 shooting. Like, that's it. The Heat and, are, the heat are and, toast if Jimmy Butler can't score. The Heat are toast. And two attempted free throws, right? Had 26 the first two games, has two the last two games. And that's what I mean. Like, if this, if if both these teams were 100% healthy, I think there might be more analysis of, like, different things that are going on here. But to me, the Heat clearly are a mess from an injury standpoint, way more than the Celtics are. And so that's why, to me, it just comes down to, are the Celtics going to stay out of their own way or not? The answer is yes, they should be in the NBA Finals. Because I just don't see how Jimmy Butler is going to get back to the guy that was destroying the Celtics in games one and two on this knee when these guys are playing every other day. He's trying to play 40 minutes. I mean, again, he gutted it out last night. He immediately, of course, said after the game, his knee is fine. As our buddy Nick Ferdell said on TV last night, uh, as we were doing post-game stuff, I've covered Jimmy Butler my whole career. When he says there's nothing wrong with him, probably means there's something wrong with him. So, well, look, you know, I mean, he's... last night was one of the only games I can ever remember from Jimmy Butler's career where he played the entirety of the competitive part of the game other than when he rests, obviously. And you just didn't feel his impact at nope. all on either end of the nope. floor. Like, was is he in the game? What's going on? And I said, by the right. way, the Celtics said their full team last night. Obviously, they didn't. Marcus Smart didn't play. Didn't the Marcus guy who Smart. guarded yeah. Jimmy Butler once he came back. But Derek White was so good defensively. Now, Derek White can't make a shot. He does not want to shoot threes at all. He can mm. You can leave him wide open anywhere but the corner, and he's going to dribble right into you. But yeah, Derek White was funny last night, defensively, though. He, he defensively, out. he did enough. Yes. Well, he came out. He said the, he, had, he, went, he talked to morning shoot around and said, I was way too passive my first two games in the series. I'm going to be way more aggressive. He comes out. He had a layup on the first possession, made a three on the second possession, had a quick bucket after that. You're thinking, all right, Derek White is back. Now, he took like 14 shots. The problem was he missed his final 10 or 11 and ended up, I think, 4-14 for the game. I think, he, I think he started three for four and finished four for 14. So, you know, that wasn't great. But if he's playing with that level of aggression at both ends, Celtics will be just fine because he'll eventually start knocking down some more shots and they'll be okay. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Let's discuss the, uh, the elephant in the room and just get it over with. The Celtics have attempted 39 more free throws in the series than Miami. The disparity in the last two games has been overwhelming. You combine that with the zap rootering of the Peyton Pritchard uh, grabbing at Jimmy Butler. I didn't even know leg. about this. Nobody did. I didn't did. even know about the right. Nobody did. Come on. And it's it's not a thing. But obviously, Spo brought it up uh, before yesterday's game. And I, I think in an attempt to, you know, this is what coaches do. They attempt to intimidate the sure. officials and swing the officiating. I've watched these games, obviously, closely. I, I thought last night Boston got a pretty good whistle. But, I mean, not to the degree that it's going to swing the outcome of a non-game. Um, and I've also, well, look, but I, I also saw possessions where the Heat hand-checked Boston's ball handlers with both hands and didn't get called for it. And Game 3 right. was an ultra-physical game. And, by the way, I'm, I'm sorry to inform Heat fans, your team was 27th in opponent free-throw rate in the regular season. Like, you foul a lot. That's what you do. Right. Now, the Celtics are not a super-aggressive get-to-the-line team. 
but they've been driving pretty hard in this series. Should the disparity be plus 29 instead of plus 39? Maybe, but this is baked into how the Heat play. They're handsy, they're physical, and they foul a lot. Well, look, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of stuff to unpack here, right? So first of all, Zach, you're a smart guy. How many guys on the Heat other than Jimmy Butler can draw a foul and get to the line consistently? Yeah, I mean, look, there will be games where say Hero the answer, gets you six or the answer, seven. I'd Bam. say the answer last night was zero. <laughs> There's zero guys. If Bam's not going to shoot and Hero isn't playing and Jimmy's hurt, the answer's probably zero, right? I mean, Victor Oladipo got a few last night. He had a bit of a throwback game. But they don't have anybody that's going to put pressure on the refs, right? Whereas the Celtics have been aggressively attacking the rim. They've got Jason Tatum. They've got Jalen Brown. They've got these guys that can get to the line and draw fouls, right? Sort of like the opposite of when the Suns are playing, right? The Suns, people, you know, people are complaining, all the Suns need to get to the foul line more. Nobody on the Suns gets to the foul line. That's not how they play. So it's one thing to complain about foul calls, another to get to the line. And to your point about the Heat, that I think is the most important thing. The Heat are essentially playing like the Legion of Boom Seahawks on defense, right? They're committing a foul in every play because they know to win these games, they have to turn the Celtics over. They have to get into them and get physical and get the Celtics sped up. Those two quarters when the Celtics are horrendous in this series, first quarter of game three, third quarter of game one, they beat the Celtics up and the Celtics started just throwing the ball up in the air and allowing the Heat to go down for dunks. Like that's what the Heat have to do. And that, like you said, that's going to lead to a lot of foul calls. Legion, not, of, Legion of Boom is a, is a cool nickname. Is that what they did? Was that the Legion of Boom thing? They just committed the holding penalties and pass interference yeah, all the Mina, time? It's Mina, Kimes, Mina Kimes is going to be very disappointed you don't know that. Yeah, they're... they're, they're uh, Richard, Sherman was, Richard Sherman was part of the Legion of Boom, right? Yes, I know was. that, at yes, least. You, you, do, you do know that, that you'll get some points back. But yes, that was their essential strategy was we're basically going to commit pass interference on every single play and dare you to call it every play and that's really what the heat are doing they're i mean that's gonna, that's the Jer- that's the jerry sloan defense if we want to use it in yes. comparison no for sure yeah but that's what the heat are doing like eric spolster's not a dummy right he knows how his team is going to win this series they have to speed the fu- like the celtics for as good as they are now and as much as they've improved from a mental focus standpoint this group still as we've seen twice in this series right can get completely out of sorts and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in particular are still not quite good enough with the ball to where if they don't get out, sped up and flustered by the refs and flustered by the defense and physicality that they won't start just flinging the ball all over the place. And Van Gundy and that, Barkley are both right, by the way, that Tatum needs to stop whining to the refs. He's too good. It's the same thing with Luka last yes. year when I said he had become one of the biggest whiners in the league and Mark Cuban said... F you, Zach Lowe, to me. Um, hi, Mark. Um, that's a nice, that's a nice little, uh, that's a nice little circle back to you, by the way. There, uh, yeah. just out of nowhere. Well, because if I'm going to call Luca a whiner, I got to do the same thing for Tatum. And Van Gundy's right. He's. I meant, up. I meant that you getting, I meant that you getting cursed. I mean, you just casually bringing up you got cursed out by Cuban part. That's all. Yeah, yeah whatever. Um, but but Tatum's gesticulating. And has yes. the Tim Duncan open mouth after like every yes. single call. Like do it twice. Just do it like to, yes. to give yourself two a game, two wild gesticulations a game and leave it there. By the way, Legion of Boom, do you have a favorite team nickname in the history of sports? I really team nicknames are are tricky and sometimes more rewarding, Tim Bontemps, than individual nicknames. Is there one, is there any you particularly like? I have an answer, so it's unfair of me. It's it's far too I I'm I'm far too out of sorts to uh, give you an answer. So what do you got? Five slamma jamma. Oh, that's yeah. I mean that's that's the all time. That's the iconic one. Yeah, that's uh, the winner. Underrated. I mean the Fab Five. The Fab Five is pretty good. I guess Fab Five is pretty good. Five <laughs> slamma jamma. It's not the same, but the way five say- slamma jamma evokes Greek systems at college for a college basketball team that dunked a lot was is just I grew it's up perfect. I grew up with the Fab Five, so I would probably say that. Uh, underrated. That was, that was pretty cool. Uh, underrated way before your time and way before my time, actually. Um, some people think it's too cartoonish. Uh, for the 70s Minnesota Vikings defense, the Purple People Eaters, big fan of the Purple People Eaters. Oh, yeah, I, I think mean, that's that was, a great nickname. Yeah, that's another one. I'm I don't know what we, the hell we're, we're talking. talking about. I was going to say, this is what this series deserves. It deserves a discussion about 1970s 
NFL team nicknames. Doesn't deserve breakdowns of these games of this conference finals, that's for sure. Five slamma jamma. Amazing. So here's what I meant by Boston. I think finding the right balance oh, in their defense. One, Go ahead. One thing really – no, no, no. I was just going to say because we, we got away from it. Emi Odoka has been all over Jason Tatum about this from the beginning of the season. And you saw in game three, he yanked him out for a period. The legend Jackie Mack pointed this out to me later. I went back and looked at it. He yanked out Jason Tatum, I think, a little early in the first half. And there was a long stretch in that game after that where he didn't complain. And Emi has been on him about that all year, really since the day he showed up. He's been like, we got to stop complaining to the refs all the time. So everybody on the team. And Tatum is actually, I think, a little better about it than he used to be. But to your point, he's still nowhere near where I think he should be because sometimes the best fast break against the Celtics is when Tatum thinks he got a foul because he'll just yell at the refs and you get the other way and get an advantage. Every call is not a travesty. Even <laughs> even a missed call, it does, even if the call's wrong, it's not a travesty of justice. Right. It's just like, hey, man, you missed that one. Or, oh, darn. Right. It's just like, you know, uh, make a mean face. It's not like, I, I don't even, anyway. You don't have to do anyway. like the wave and start yelling and screaming after yes. every every stupid ticky-tack foul. Um, yes. Boston's defense. So, clearly, I, game last night, game four, crystallize it. If Bam is screening, we're dropping back. If P.J. Tucker is screening, we're dropping back. And in game three, they started to do that more, and I thought their execution was a little slipshod. Is that a word, slipshod? The guards were getting caught up on screens. And it's a game of inches, man. Like, if you get caught up on a screen and you're behind, the big that's dropping back has to slide over an extra foot. And that's the difference between Bam getting a layup and a dunk and Bam getting a floater, which is all that they got last night in the first half was floaters because yep. the Celtics just walled them off. So we're dropping on Bam, we're dropping on Tucker because I think Bam slipping out of screens for dunks and getting offensive rebounds against switches freaked them out a little bit. And so, okay, let's just see what happens when we keep these guys in front. Hopefully we don't give up a lot of pull-up jumpers to Kyle Lowry and Max Struess. And we'll take an extra step up on Max Struess so he doesn't have a great look at it. And and we'll see what happens. And, and everything else... A lot of other stuff, Lowry Butler action, stuff with Struce flying around screens off the ball. We'll switch yep. if it's like size personnel and it's not Bam. We'll switch. And we'll go under on Jimmy Butler. I loved when they put Time Lord on Jimmy Butler, which is something we saw the Sixers do with Embiid, put their centers on Jimmy Butler and just say, all right, we're going to duck under everything. Try and beat us with long twos. And you saw Boston start to move in that direction with Jimmy in game two when they won. Um, and, and I thought they nailed the right mix of coverages last night. And to me, the biggest number one storyline in game five is health. And beneath that is, do the Heat have counters knowing that that's coming? Because I don't think this is a situation where Boston is going to think, okay, we had great success in that last game. They're going to be ready for it. Let's change it up a little bit. If I'm Boston, I'm saying we, we nailed it. We don't think they have answers. We're sticking with it. So my question to you is, what answers could the Heat have knowing, okay, they're going to drop back on Bam. They're going to play a pretty conservative defense. We couldn't get anything but floaters and mid-rangers in game, in game four. We got to get something better in game five. How do we do it? Can they fly in a new knee for Jimmy? Can they go find one of those strip mall-like setups and get him some help there? Probably. Like I, I think that, I mean, they probably can. That, that, I think, is what it's going to come down to. I just don't. I mean, look, to me, you're right on all those adjustments last night. I also think a lot of that was the Celtics quickly saw there wasn't a lot to be scared of from anybody but Bam, and they were going to make sure Bam didn't beat him after game three. Eme basically said after the game, we took it personally. Our guys took it personally the way he was able to dominate us in game three. You saw Al Horford was right in his grill and stripped him on the first possession. I don't think that was a coincidence. Um, he talked about in the morning, uh, Al did about the Celtics needing to handle their business. He had said after game three that the, he played like wounded animals. Like he came out with a point to prove in that game last night. But yeah, I think when you look at it for the heat to win tomorrow, I think they need Jimmy Butler to look a lot more like the Jimmy Butler of the first two games of the series than the one of the last two games of the series. Because if Jimmy is playing at this level, 
And even on the one jumper he took last night that he made, he had no lift at all. Um, and he is tough as hell. If anybody's got to figure out a way to play through this, it's Jimmy. No, they're to- and, they're toast if Jimmy Butler can't be 80% I, I, of Jimmy Butler. Right. And I just think, to your point, like, for all the adjustments the Celtics made, like, the Celtics I might have the best defense of my lifetime, I think, watching the NBA in turn, when their top seven guys are playing because they're, they're all big for their position. They're all physical. They can all switch on to basically any position. And there's just nowhere to attack at all. And you saw in that game last night, the Heat were, I mean, in the first quarter, I looked up Jay King's tweet last night um, after the first quarter. The Heat had two points in the paint, and they had two attempted three-pointers. Like, that is a crazy stat for the first for a quarter in an NBA game in today's NBA with two elite teams playing. And that, would, to me, just sort of summed up, like you said, every shot in that first quarter in particular when the game was decided, whereas the Heat desperately trying to find something that wasn't a floater or a contested mid-range jumper, and then barfing one up late in the shot clock because they didn't have an answer. And the other thing, frankly, is Bam just has to be more aggressive. They have to, I don't know what they have to do, but they have to do something to get Bam to play like the player he was in game three because that guy looked like the max player that I think Bam is, that is one of the best centers in the league. And to your point, the guy in the other three games in the series has had some moments on defense, but has otherwise been invisible. And the Heat also are not going to win if Bam keeps playing like that. Yeah, I mean, it's simple. If Jimmy and Bam combine for 25 points in a game, the Heat are going to lose. I don't care if they have home court advantage, which right. they do in the in the next two. The Heat have home court. The Heat, it's 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 2-2. Like, the Heat, I think I picked the Celtics in six. I think the Celtics at full health are, did a, I. are a better team. But As the Heat still have home court. All the Heat got to do is win their home games. Like, And they showed in game three. Game three, it's just like every game is its own thing. Every game is its own entity. Any individual game can be weird and strange. Yep. And game three, yep. when everybody got injured and Butler didn't play the second half and the Heat just clung for dear life at the end of the game, they won without Jimmy Butler. Like If you would have told me before the game, the Heat will be up 15 at halftime and Jimmy Butler won't play the second half and the game's in Boston and here are the shooting numbers for the first half. Who wins the game? I would have said, I, I think Boston probably comes back and wins this game, honestly. And it looked like that I was going to was. I thought Boston was going to come back and win the game when Jimmy was out. And, and, and they didn't. Like So the, you sneak out a weird game five in Miami. Yeah, you might yep. not be the best team in the series. You're up 3-2. You have two chances to win one. Like The series is, is right there for them. Um, I, I think, number one... They just have to make the, – the few open pull-ups they got last night, have, they, right. they missed. You, you, you're right. just, they're just going to have to make some of them, not all of them, but a decent percentage of them. Yeah, and they have the potential to be a team that goes 19 for 40 from three, right, or something like that. Like, they got to do that too. Like, they got to have a night where they hit a bunch of threes, which they're more than capable of doing. Like, Struess is a great shooter. Maybe they play Duncan Robinson. I thought – I know the game, the minutes were meaningless last night, and I know Duncan will be a target dummy on defense, which is why he hasn't played. But I did think it was interesting that he came in and got off in the fourth quarter last night. Like, perhaps he does get dusted off a bit in game five to just see if he can hit six threes. And he needs to play minutes. with Bam. He needs to play with Bam because that's, Bam that's unlocks That's been crazy. And, yeah, and that's that, been crazy in this series, Zach. Don't you think that any time, like the few times they've tried him, they haven't had him out there with Bam. I haven't understood that. Like, to me, if you're going to play Duncan at all, don't you have to have him out there in those pet actions with Bam to try to unlock him? Well, I mean, and the non-Bam minutes, no matter how they slice it, are a problem. Deadman is minus 19 and 38 minutes and just doesn't Oof. appear to have a role in the series. Tucker at center is minus 11 and only six minutes total, and obviously he's banged up too. They just don't have an answer for the fact that Bam, like every other player, cannot play 48 minutes of every single game. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, and and uh, but I, I do think the other answer is they've got to get a little more creative with their half-court offense, which they're more than capable of doing. And I don't think it was an accident, Tim Bontemps, that the very first play – of the second half, obviously the game's already over. No, it's not already over, but you need a massive run right away. But you're still yes. looking for stuff. Okay, we know the Celtics are dropping back on defense. Our initial pick-and-roll attack, when it's just one action, hasn't hasn't done much. First play of the second half, 
They run a double pick and roll for Butler or Lowry. I can't remember who. Knowing both defenders are going to drop back. Then they have one of the screeners set a pin down. So it's a pick and roll into a pin down for Struess. And the whole point of that is we're leveraging the initial drop against you to try and get Struess open. And I think you're just going to see more stuff like that. Like if you know the drop is coming, run a screen the screener action where you knock that screener defender back an extra couple of steps and compromise the defense. I think they got to use Butler as a screener in pick and rolls if they're going to put, particularly if they're going to put centers on him. They tried an yep. inverted pick and roll with Bam as the ball handler, and the Celtics, to their credit, were ready and and went under that. And sometimes just like you got to flip the screen around a couple times, like rescreen it, flip it around, do a quick, you know, one pick and roll on one side. They did this with Oladipo in the second half. Immediate swing to the other side into like a yep. super fast dribble handoff. It's just got to be stuff. Like that, activate the split game a little bit more. We haven't seen their post-up bam and have the shooters running around setting screens for each other like the Warriors. Part of that was that Hero was out last night. We haven't barely mentioned him. I mean, Hero's been up and down this series. But if we're talking I about would, the Heat, I mean, if we're talking about the Heat's yeah. half-court offense, they need Tyler Hero. I, I know it's he's a defensive liability. The Celtics are going to hunt him. That's cool. If you have 44 points in the third quarter, you have no chance to win. Like You need someone right. who can make some shots and get into the right. paint and hit a floater over a drop back defense. I mean, that that's what he can do. So I think those are some of the things we're going to see uh, in game five. And if we don't see them, they're in big trouble. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the other things last night, right? For as terrible as the Heat were, the reason it wasn't the worst offensive game basically in NBA playoff history was because Victor Oladipo looked like Indiana Victor Oladipo again, right? And hit a bunch of shots. If it wasn't for that, this team had nothing until the fourth quarter. I think he had 20, I think he had 19 points and they had 42 or 44 with two minutes to go in the third quarter. Like, I mean, it's your point. Like, they're not going to, for as good as the Celtics defense is, the Heat aren't going to shoot like that again. Certainly not at home. So they're going to, they'll they'll make some more shots. But yeah, I think, you know, Max Struess is a guy who thinks he's going to score 30 every game. He's more than capable of hitting six or seven threes in a game. Game five would be a great time for their guys to go off, for Gabe Vincent to come in and hit some threes, Max to come in and hit some threes. Like, they are capable of going, like I said before, 18, 19, 20 three-pointers made in the game. They do that, all of a sudden, that's a whole bunch more points they didn't have in game four. And, you know, maybe this gets to a place where the Celtics are in crunch time in a game. And the Celtics, as we saw in game four, this team is still, for all the success they've had since late January, they basically have never played in the cr- in clutch time. And when they have played in clutch time this season, all the way back to day one, they've been horrible. So if the game could be close with five minutes to go, they got a shot. You would hope that games like game six in Milwaukee with your season on the line sort of exercises all of that, all of whatever demons you might have about crunch time. Um, you would like to think so, but if you're the Heat, I mean, the Heat have had their issues in crunch time too, but... If you're the Heat, like you what you look at the way game four played out. I know there were injuries and Tatum came in and out and stuff, but at the end of the day, the Celtics got within one and the Heat scored three straight baskets and the Celtics had a turnover and a shot clock violation. Right? Like it's not it's not exactly encouraging about their execution in those moments. Speaking of game three, another thing that I think we're learning, the Celtics have withstood his absence so well that I think I'm, I've been guilty of it, reading the tweets, oh, Robert Williams out game three, and being like, oh, this, okay, Robert Williams is out, the Celtics know how to play. Robert Williams is massively important to their team, and you saw it last night, the vertical threat on offense. I mean, you cognitively know this, but when you see it again, all of a sudden, all the little interior passes between Horford and, and whoever the center is are leading to dunks. Where for Tice, you have to slip it in. He's going to pump fake. He's going to shoot a 12-foot floater. It's not going to go in. And defensively, obviously, Robert Williams changes how what the matchups are, where he is on the floor, what their rim protection is like. Um, to the point that if he can't if he can't go, we saw last night, smart out, they went to the gigantic lineup for a few minutes with Grant Williams at the three and two bigs. If Robert Williams can't go, and it seems like a mystery every game, then he started limping in the second half last night, and then I guess after the game said it felt great to play, blah, 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 so we'll see. 
If he can't go, I almost wonder if Boston needs to go small more instead of playing Tice at all. Like, and, and like uh, if you yes, if you've I, got only two of those three core bigs available, I think the answer for Boston is going to be more time with Tatum or Brown at the four, no Tice, and see how that looks against Miami. Because I don't worry about Miami like punishing me. With size, Miami's a small team other than Bam, really. I mean, they yep. play bigger than they are, but they're not a big, like, vertical, athletic, rebounding team. No, no, PJ and PJ and Jimmy are their fours, right? I mean, they don't really have any other fours that they play, anyway. Um, and, yeah, to your point, I asked Ime after Game 3 about starting Tice and then basically just going away from it and playing Grant at the four the rest of the game. I thought the Celtics were going to start Grant Williams at the four, because game two changed when the Celtics went away from the two big lineup midway through the first quarter, went to Granite power forward, and they won by a thousand points then because the Heat couldn't guard them, and the Celtics were big enough to stop them at the other end of the court. And Ime, you know, defending his players, said, "Ah, you know, it's not about Tice. We all were terrible," which was true. They were all were terrible to start a game three. But I'm with you, Zach. If 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 Robert can't play or has some flare up, which all of us on press row certainly noted him laboring in that third quarter it'll be interesting to see if he could play in game five if he isn't able to go I think you have to start Grant Williams at the four and play four out and like you said have Jalen or Jason play the other minutes not play Tice because because he's starting Grant Williams at the four in that scenario is like an absolute no-brainer like why you know your best lineup and you saw them ride it really hard in game three without Time Lord is is smart Tatum, Brown, Grant Williams, Horford, and you throw Derek White in when you need to. Um, yep. Just start it and and move on. Um, the other yeah, the other totally. thing the other thing with Miami's offense, I I thought they got away, and maybe this is just because they didn't have Hero and Butler is limited. I thought they got away from seeking out Pritchard and White in the half court, and White's a good defender, but Jimmy can bully Derek White if if he's really going for it, and Bam, if you can get that matchup. Uh, Derek White was the screener defender, the guy guarding the screener on the pick and roll only six times last night, Peyton Pritchard only three times. That's not enough. And the other thing I always like when you know a team is dropping back in pick and roll is, A, play faster so they can't set their defense, obviously. I just like, and you see them do it every once in a while, give your guy like a pick at half court so he's got a runway toward that guy dropping back or do the opposite and give your guy a pick at the foul line. So it kind of confuses the defense if they go under. You've got an open pole. Like the Heat have yeah, the counters Dame, the, to the all Dame this. Lillard or the Ben Simmons. Yeah, there you go. Um, and I just, you know, Boston offensively, we know what they're going to do. And I thought they were a little bit more focused going at um, the Heat's weaker defenders last night to the degree that the Heat play any weaker defenders. My favorite play of the game for Boston was, I think it was in the second quarter, Tatum, there was a double drag for Tatum. And Lowry and Struess were the two defenders involved. And Lowry told Struess to pre-switch so that he was defending the first screener and Lowry would be at the end of the chain to switch onto Tatum. Tatum saw that and waved the second screener away and waved Lowry away with him. So just give me Struess, abort the play, give me Struess, got the switch. And that was the play where the heat loaded up toward that switch because they're like, "Uh uh-oh. And... Hit Horford in the corner. Horford drove by Bam. Hit Time Lord for an alley oop. I just like when Boston's playing with that kind of focus and that kind of predatory calculation. They're just so much better than the team that was throwing the ball around. Um, yes, and we'll see. I mean, by like, the way, and by the way, last night the Celtics shot thirty nine percent from the field, and they were eight for thirty four from three. It's not like they even played well on off. And obviously, the Heat have a great defense. I'm not saying the Heat didn't play a part in that. They did, but. It wasn't like that game was a route because the Celtics were hitting every shot. I mean, they can also shoot the ball a lot better than they did last night, too. The other thing is, by the numbers, this surprised me when I looked it up. The Heat's zone is not working. The the Celtics have averaged, according to Second Spectrum, on 26 possessions of Heat zone, the Celtics are averaging 1.36 points per possession, which is like so by far and away above the best offense in the league. That's right. an interesting little nugget because in the past, the Heat zone felt like a weapon 
like where they would put Derrick Jones Jr. at the top of it, and it was like, oh my god, what am I supposed to do with these guys? Like Jay Crowder and Derrick Jones Jr. are up here yeah. in my face. The bad defenders yep. are in the corner. Now it feels like something they do from a position of vulnerability to protect lineups that have two or three weak defenders in it. And Boston, although it doesn't look like they're getting great looks, they seem by the numbers kind of comfortable. And they, you know, Tatum flashed up for a little jumper last night. They seem okay with that. And if that just is out of the bag for the Heat, that's another thing. But look, it's 2-2, man. Like, I think Boston's better, but I, they don't have home court. I, I, I'm sticking with Boston at six. I think Boston will win this series. But funny things happen in the playoffs, and if Jimmy can find his game, that's the whole thing. If Jimmy can find his game, this is yep. a toss-up series right now. And if he can't, Boston has an edge. But it just – game five kind of snuck up on me, Tim. I'm going to Miami like now after we get off this podcast. I should be like stoked for this pivotal conference finals game five. The winner is going to have a great shot to go face the – the the their back warriors in the finals. Oh my God, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson's back and Draymond and what a clash! And it feels like, it feels like the series is just kind of just getting started and been weird. I don't know, man. I, I wish this round was a little better, especially after that Bucks Celtics series last round. It's just been kind of a downer. feels a lot. It feels a lot like the Sixers Heat series, which was watching six regular season games. I feel like I've watched four more regular season games. I mean, it's just not been very compelling. On any level, what's been the Obviously, best? Game what's what's was, been the but, best series of the playoffs so far? Celtics Bucks. I mean, Suns I mean, Mavs I, was a so lot of fun. Not, no, no, Suns Mavs was generally terrible, and it, uh, pretty but much the all those drama, games were out. The drama of the trash talk and the storylines. Bucks Celtics. Bucks Celtics was an all-time classic series. Every pretty much every other series in these playoffs has been hot garbage. Hot garbage. The NBA colon. Hot garbage in the summer, in the spring. No, there's got to be what series? Pelican Suns was kind of fun. No, I you're mean, you're just giving about, me. Now we're talking about first round playoff series. I mean, it's fine. I mean, Mavs it's been Jazz? it's been a dis it's been a disappointing playoffs to me from a drama standpoint. Like I saw a stat last night. There's been seven total minutes of clutch basketball in the last seventeen playoff games. I'm sorry, what? That's correct. That's a, that's a real stat. I guess that makes it. We're talking about the blowouts. All right, let's do it right up, now. I will let's, look, I will I'm look looking up at these. the standings. Let's do the best playoff up. series. He, well, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the second best because Celtics-Bucks was the best by a very significant amount. All right, so first round, Heat-Hawks-Snoozer. Celtics-Nets, fun fun, pretty fun for a sweep, but still a sweep. Sixers-Raptors was fun for five seconds when the Sixers might have blown a 3-0 lead. You're I covered that your series. Head. It wasn't fun. Bucks Bulls was a joke. Bucks Bulls was the worst brand of annoying where you thought it was going to be a sweep. So in your head, it's like, hey, okay, there's one series I, I don't have to like dig so, so deeply into. And then the Bucks lose game one or lose game two. Did they lose game two? I don't know. They lost one of the first two games. They, bar- they barely won game one and then lost, lost game, game two. two. And they're like, oh, now I have to pay attention to this thing. And then they blow the out of them for the rest of the game. Okay, so those are the East. The, those are the East first round series. Suns Pelicans, okay. Oh, Grizz Wolves. Grizz Wolves. We forgot about the obvious one. That was just. That was, that was a, a fun series. That was a ball. That was a fun series. It so was... two fun series. Yeah. Two fun series. Yeah, That's Nuggets it. Warriors was crappy. Mavs Jazz was fun. Remember the the Mavs Jazz had Rudy's game winning alley oop in Game yes. Four and f that talk. And then yes. yeah, mm-hmm. that didn't go great. By well, the way, the... here's the here's the stat. Here's the stat from last night from Justin Justin's fan from the Action Network. Uh, or not from the Action Network. I'm sorry, used to be now with Underdog Fantasy. Margin of victory: the last 17 playoff games. Average margin of victory: 19.8 points. There's been a total of seven clutch time minutes. You know what this is? You know what this means? Speak it into existence, Tim. Game five in Miami on the shores of Biscayne Bay is coming down to the wire. I'm speaking it into existence right now. I'm gonna hit. That'd you. be fun. I'm gonna text you, and when it's 101-101 with 45 seconds left in the fourth quarter. I'm going to text you and say I told you I, I mean we'll both be at, I mean we'll, yeah, I mean we'll both be at the game. Maybe we'll be sitting next to me, but hopefully uh hopefully it is. I would love for these final couple games to be exciting and close and competitive. It would be great. And I'd like to see Jimmy Butler healthy and Marcus Smart healthy and 
these teams at full go. But and by and know, by we'll the see. way, both of these teams again healthy, which we haven't seen, and particularly in the Heat's case, it feels very rickety right now. Both of these teams have a chance against the Warriors. I I might. Well, I, I would. I think I, I would th- pick Boston to yeah, win for sure. Actually. I think the Celtics. If they actually can get there. I think the Celtics. Uh, matchup is what well. I mean. The I I was on Get Up yesterday and Sneaky Hembo. The trivia question was, "What's the only team in the Steve Kerr era with a winning record against the Warriors regular season and playoffs Celtics. combined?" And I got it because Sneaky Hembo is not so freaking sneaky. It's Boston. They've always played the Warriors really well, and yep. the Heat at full health, their defense is going to keep them in games. They're gonna they're not going to screw up against the Warriors to the degree that most teams do. Like there is a lot at stake here, even though right now it seems. Like the Warriors, this indomitable juggernaut that's eleven and three in the playoffs or whatever. Well, they look, are. E- even if you think they are an indomitable juggernaut, right? I mean, there's a lot at stake because there's, you know, let's just, you know, barring the first three zero comeback of all time, there's three teams left. Like you, it doesn't take much to have a shot at doing what you spend, you know, months and years waiting to do here. Which is to your point, why, you know, games like tomorrow, you know, game five in a two-two series, this is the kind of game where you know, this is a, a legacy-making game on both sides. If Jimmy Butler can get his knee back right, find a way to win two games in this series, get the Heat back to the finals, like, you know, that's the kind of thing that will be talked about when he's going in the Hall of Fame. And Jason Tatum on the other side, this is what? Boston's fourth time in the past six years in the conference finals. This team's repeated. I think they've been in the conference finals six times in a row and lost since 2010. Like, They've been knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door to make the NBA Finals. Game five on the road. Jason Tatum comes out. Jalen Brown comes out and have a big game. Then come back here to Boston and close this thing out in game six. Like These are the really fun games. Hopefully we'll get a really fun game to see you know, who could take control of the series. Well, to your point about Boston, there are conference finals appearances and then there are conference finals appearances. And like 2018, when they took the Cavs to seven and Kyrie was hurt and Hayward was hurt, that was like gravy. That was like scary. Terry, the young guys are getting experience. That's all fun and games. The next year is obviously an organizational disaster when the Kyrie situation goes haywire and they get smoked by the Bucks. Feels like a wasted season. 2020 bubble, Kemba's, you know, up and down dealing with knee stuff. They feel internally. They, they blew that series. They though. could they have should have won that series. They easily could have. They easily could have beat Miami and didn't. Right. And then last year turned into like another one of these sort of disaster melodrama seasons. There are first round patsy for the Nets. Danny Ainge resigns. Brad Stevens resigns as coach and moves upstairs. Blah blah blah. Like at some point you got to break through. And it's easy to think, well, these guys are all young still. They'll be here forever and every year they're going to have a chance. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but like, right. You know. At some point, regret becomes the defining feature of your team, and the Celtics are not there, not even close because of their age. But like, at some point, they got to get to the finals. Like, you, you got to just make that step. And if they don't win this yeah. series, health aside, they're going to look back again. Like, did we miss another opportunity? Anyway, Tim Bontemps, I will see you on the shores of Biscayne Bay. I got my yes, pink sir. shirt and my turquoise hat and my Lamborghini, oh and I'm coming down to South Beach. And we're gonna hit the clubs, all right? Well, I'll see you. I'll see you live. Is there a live in Miami? I'll see you live on South Beach at like two. I usually I usually roll in like two forty five. I I don't all like right. to be early. All I probably the most Zach Lowe statement of all time is quote Is there a live in Miami? That's that's probably that's probably is the most on brand you could be. Pal. Look, I can't tell all the club goers that I get to live at two forty five. Okay, like I need my table, I need my bottle service. I'll see you there. Okay, two forty five. Don't come early. Nobody, nobody who's nobody who's anybody shows up to live before two thirty. Okay, just just remember that. in the afternoon, right? No, two forty five. A.M. Baby, A.M. A.M. All right, I'll see you, Tim. All right, see you, buddy.